Cat Disgusted is a show about veterinary nursing. It is not a show about how to cure your sick pet. If your animal is sick, take it to the vet. Don't be a crazy person and use a podcast to cure your puking cat, dog, chinchilla, etc., etc. I think they would tell you the same thing. If they could. Mm, which they can't. Which makes it hard. You know what's up. Take them to the vet. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Cat Disgusted, a podcast for veterinary technicians and the people and animals who love them. Each episode, we explore the best of times and the worst of times in veterinary nursing. I'm your host, Nicole Dickerson. I'm an RVT working in emergency and critical care. BTSCCC. And this is what happens. Hello, my darling ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Cat Disgusted. It has been uh, two months nearly to the day since I recorded uh, the last episode of this show, which is so crazy to me because I feel like it has honestly been so much longer, like so, so much longer. And I think it's just because a lot's happened since last we spoke. Um, I was on my way to Puerto Rico for the Humane Society's Spayathon for Puerto Rico the last time that um, we chatted. And that has since come to pass. And I've been back uh, for about a month, I think. And um, I'm going to tell you about it. That's that's the plan. I'm going to now tell you about this amazing adventure uh, that I went on with my good friend Jordan, uh, who is now in Portland. I really wanted her to be a part of this particular show, but she'll just have to participate via um, listening and P-Town influence. Uh, she's doing an amazing job at a new clinic in uh, in Portland, which focuses, focuses intensely on anesthesia. And the things she's been telling me about um, that they're doing up there is just like 100% right up her alley. So you go, girl. Um but so I, I, I'm going to try to like break this down in sequence and hopefully do it all in one episode, you guys. It was an amazing, life-changing adventure. I've, I've never done anything like this before um, in my life. Like, you know, traveled to another country to do veterinary medicine, um, done such a high-volume spay and neuter surgery situation. I've done some relief work where you do like, you know, 35, 40 in a day. But this was, this was over a thousand animals uh, that we did in, in Puerto Rico in the hallway of a baseball stadium. But, but I get ahead of myself. Um, so, you know, I found out about this trip uh, because Jordan had been before. She had um, participated in these trips that are on Indian reservations uh, where these teams, well, these veterinary teams will go in and they'll vaccinate dogs. They'll spay and neuter dogs and cats, um, trapping uh, cats and feral dogs. And it's it, it's intense, like in areas where like like we think we know what poor and poverty looks like. Uh, you don't until you've been on one of these uh, Indian, they call it a RAVS trip or rural area veterinary specialist trips. That's where you see uh, real need in this in this continental United States, like on the mainland. So um, she has gone on these trips before and she had gone on a spayathon to Puerto Rico before. And when I was studying for my VTS exam, she had brought up these these trips to me before and was like, I think you'd really dig it. I think you'd be really good at it. I think we'd really have a great time. And I had always said, you know, I really have to focus on this VTS thing. And uh, I can't really like take on another project until this VTS thing is over because it's super intense. And she's like, oh yeah, okay. And then I took the test and I thought that I failed. Like thought that I had bombed kablooey failed and that I was going to take it again in Washington DC so when I came back from New Orleans and Jordan's like hey you did the test I'm like yeah but it really sucked so I'm gonna do it again and it kind of I thought pushed back my participation in these uh in these trips for like a whole nother year but then I got the test results and I passed and so by some miracle of baby Jesus 
I didn't have to worry about the test again. And literally what she said was, oh my God, congratulations. It's so great. So the dates that you're going to go are, and she gave me this paper towel, like paper towel from work that she'd pulled out of the dispenser in the, in the CCU with all these dates written in pencil on it for May for the uh, Puerto Rico Spayathon, and that's the first page of my travel journal is that paper towel that she wrote all the dates on I just taped that in like day one here we go and so I requested that time off of work uh we we uh she she I asked her do I need to send my resume or any and she's like I am your resume you're good so she put my name in uh with the with the Cornell University shelter medicine team which was which was uh joining the U.S. Humane Society on this trip uh to do the surgeries and I was good to go uh and I feel like at this point now it's worth kind of talking about the anatomy of how this works. And so I'm going to try to give you my basic understanding of it. It's complicated. So the U.S. Humane Society is kind of like the umbrella organization. And there's lots of other organizations that are involved underneath it that they're coordinating with. And all those are traveling to Puerto Rico. So we all flew into San Juan. And then from there, we traveled about, I think it was like probably like an hour, hour and a half to the southern part of the island to a little tiny uh, town called Calle. And that's where we set up this like MASH clinic uh, veterinary hospital which consisted of seven anesthesia machines, seven surgery tables. Ooh, more than that, because there were two, three machines for induction, um, oxygen machines, as well as oxygen tanks, uh, fridges for vaccines, had their own autoclave so they could wrap all the packs, sterile packs, gloves. All this stuff is shipped on pallets to get to that area so that you've got boxes and boxes of supplies. Um, These guys also get... Uh, everybody who comes to this clinic who lives uh, in the area, they get collars, they get flea medication, um, they get, uh, I saw bags of dog food. It's so crazy because like where we were, this baseball stadium that was the the center point of, of all these services, we weren't actually in the on the field, on the playing field, because there were still baseball teams that were practicing out there. <laughs> where we were was in the hallway around the stadium. So you're like, you've been to like, any like any kind of setup is kind of the same. It's like big circular basically. So we were in like a half circle hallway, like where the concessions were, where the bathrooms were, with like tarps over us, and um, they they literally built us like electrical boxes, like outlets to plug things into. I saw these guys like you know screwing together outlets. I'm like, I'm sure that's fine. And uh, we set up tables, and there were plastic chairs for people for waiting areas. Signs in Spanish, we had a ground team that was uh, all people who were local to the area or from San Juan who came in and helped us coordinate with all the clientele that were coming. Um, Spanish speaking, thank God. A couple of the vets that came were Spanish speakers, which I was like amazed at how advantageous that was. Um, My broken Spanish was laughable at best. So who else was there? Um, Rocket Dog Rescue was there, which is a rescue group that's out of the Bay Area as well. And they helped us. Uh, those volunteers did all kinds of things. They wrapped drapes. Uh, we had this one fantastic volunteer named Diane who um, did surgical scrubbing for us because it's just, you know, a constant rotation of animals. They got to get sterilely scrubbed every time. Uh, there was um, there were volunteers that were not part of um, the Humane Society or part of Rocket Dog or a part of Cornell that were just associated with the, I, I think it must have been associated with the Humane Society somehow in Puerto Rico, but they, it was, some of them were veterinary students, um, vet tech school students who were in school to do this job, which I, those were the ones that just like, I loved having them there. I loved talking to them. Um, if I could <laughs> in, in English, um, the surgeons were from all over. There were some that were, there was one that was from Boston. Uh, there were some that were from Florida. Uh, there was the Cornell University team. So that's who I was associated with. The Cornell University runs one of the only shelter medicine programs, like specific to shelter medicine programs in the country. Um, the woman who is the head of that program and also our Grand High Puba organizer is Elizabeth Berliner. And I I will talk more about her later because I feel like she deserves her own homage in this episode because she's one of my, as Jordan had told me, she would be one of my newfound heroes. So 
That's a little bit about who was going. So how do we get there? So there are no direct flights that go from California to Puerto Rico. So me, Jordan, and Jordan's husband, because he was coming as a helper as well, as another volunteer. He's a he's a food dude, so he was going to be cooking, but also like transporting animals from the table to recovery area, pulling up vaccines, um, making sure paperwork got where it was supposed to go, all those wonderful things that are necessary. We all boarded a flight uh, to Florida, to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, at like 11.30 at night and took a red eye all the way across the country to get to Florida where we were like delirious. Poor Jordan tried to get a coffee with like non-dairy, like like a non-dairy milk product latte type of thing. And she went to like some coffee stand in the Fort Lauderdale airport. And she said, do you have any non-dairy options? And they looked at her like she had fucking three heads. (laughs) So we all cursed Fort Lauderdale for that reason. She was super, super stoked to be getting out of there. And then we boarded a plane that flew from Fort Lauderdale to San Juan, to San Juan, Puerto Rico, which arrived, it got us to, I think we got there at like maybe 11 or noon or something like that, you know, like just sleepless. So from there, we were picked up by uh, by our, our dear friend Brenda, who is also part of the Cornell University team. Um, we drove straight from there to the clinic. Now, I do have to mention the first adventure that me and Jordan had traveling together was on this plane that was going from Fort Lauderdale to San Juan. First of all, the difference in those planes, like the one that we flew, I think it was JetBlue, I think is what we were flying. The one that went from SFO to uh, Fort Lauderdale, you know, jet blue, nice shirt, great. Nice interior, a little fun little lights and stuff. Looks all new, fancy. The plane that we flew from um, Fort Lauderdale to San Juan, like it looked like it was going to a borderline third world country. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it, it looked like it was from the 70s. It didn't have ashtrays in the fucking hand, in the arm holders, but you know, like I looked to see if it did. <laughs> it was a little stained. The carpet was a little warped. And these dudes who um, sat across from me and Jordan, now Kyle, he like passed out. Jordan's husband passed out. So he was sleeping. But when we were taking off, me and Jordan were looking across from us and there are these very, um, oh, that's right. So before takeoff, we saw this couple we think couple come and sit next to us. And they were these very finely dressed, like young Puerto Rican gay dudes with like little lines shaved in their hair. These like crisp shirts, little shorts, no socks, the fresh shoes. And they sat down and we're very cute. And we're like, okay, we like those guys. But then a third guy came on board the plane and they saw him coming and they're all ooh, and they like made room for him in between them there's three seats on either side of this plane and he sat down in between them and they're all mm, hi hi and me and jordan were like oh is it is it is it three of them that's interesting and then seriously as soon as the plane like was taking off and getting underway they pulled out the airline blanket and like flapped it like across all three of their laps and then there was a lot of motion happening underneath this blanket and we were like oh oh it's a thruple that's what she said oh it's a san juan thruple so that was exciting um at least they made short work of the time on the plane so we landed in. Uh, so we landed in San Juan. Uh, met Brenda, who drove us in a, a minivan straight to the clinic. We were like, "Are we going to the Airbnb?" Because they put us up in these Airbnbs um, in uh, in Salinas, which is about a half hour drive from Calle. And she was like, "No, we're going straight to the clinic." We were like, huh. "But you know." Okay, that's why we're here, right? We're here to work. Let's do it. So uh, we drove straight to the clinic where they were setting up everything. Like they had already set up the anesthesia machines when I had got there. I did things like draw up vaccines. I, uh, oh, I organized the emergency crash box because I was like, oh, I can do that. I'm an emergency technician. So found like the atropine and epinephrine and flumazenil, which reverses the benzodiazepines we're using. You know, make sure we had a little set up in a cardboard box. Um, and then we drove back to the house after we spent some time with, you know, in setup land there. There was actually a lot of it set up beforehand, which I was very impressed by. Now, what we did back at the house, we had... I have to say we had very little time to ourselves, right? Because we had like 12 to 14 hour days that we did at this clinic um, every day. So this night that we drove back to the house before everything got rolling was really one of the first free nights that we would, one of the free nights that we would get. 
And the Airbnb that we were at was fly. I mean, like we had, I want to say we had 10 or 12 people that were all staying in that house. So it was huge, like two floors, big open kitchen, because like any Caribbean house, like the kitchen is just open. Like it's just like open to the world. Like you don't need walls because it's just beautiful, like sunny, sun time, fresh awesomeness all the whole time. Um, what did we do? We had a little dock that was in the back, which was like opened up onto this lagoon and there was a kayak that we could use to like paddle around on this lagoon. There was a little island where all these herons would nest. So me and Jordan freaking got in that kayak and like at sunset paddled out to this island in the middle of the lagoon. Um, it's shallow water. So people just swam out there to the island. Like you could stand up halfway there because it really didn't get much more deep than like, you know, five or six feet, you know. Oh, it was so amazing. Like on our way paddling back, I just like stopped and we just floated there for a second in this pink sunset. And I was like, look at this. Like, look at where we are right now. Like, this is amazing. Uh, I didn't take my phone because I'm turning into my mother and I was afraid I'd drop it into the sea. But even so, that memory will live on forever in my brain. Um, we had a little bar slash restaurant which was across this, literally across the street from where we stayed. So we went there for some tostones, which are these fried plantain little kind of like, they're like Puerto Rican tater tots, basically what they are, but they're smashed plantain slices. They're delicious. Um, had some of the patented mayonnaise ketchup sauce, which Puerto Rican people put on everything, which Jordan is very happy about. Um, and that was our first night and uh, went to bed early because from that point on, we got up at 4 a.m. every day uh, to get to the clinic between 5.30 and 6. Uh, intake started, I think it was 6 or 6.15. Uh, every day that we got there, there was about 150 to 200 people that were in line already by the time that we got there, which means that they must have been lining up at like, you know, 5 in the morning, 4.30 in the morning. Um, Jordan actually said that there were more people that would line up earlier, like the day before when she did the trip the first time. And uh, they all brought their cats, all brought their dogs. Now, I should talk a little bit about what my job was in this scenario, right? So I called, I think the best way that I can describe how these days went um, is by calling it the anesthesia factory, because that's really what it felt like. Um, these an So the way that the day would progress is the animal, they'd line up in the morning, right? Um, Elizabeth Berliner, who is the grand high poobah queen of this whole excursion, she would walk down the line and she would give trazodone, which is a sedative to some of the dogs that were super crazy bouncy off the wall. Um, some of the, oh, and they, all the animals would get physical exams. And so they would ask the age, they'd get their weight. Um, there's not a lot of tools that you have really in this scenario, you know, because it's just bare bones. So you have your hands, you have your stethoscope. I mean, that's, so we try to assess the health of each one of those animals as they're coming in. If they're real old and crispy, then they're probably not a good candidate for a lot of drugs in a quick spay. So, you know, we, they would kind of assess each one of them and make sure that they would be, it would be safe for them to have the surgery. If they were good to go, then they would then go to um, induction. Now, I'm probably skipping a couple steps in here. I'll, I'll preface it with that because I wasn't part of this front of house part of it. You know, I was anesthesia. So I saw very little of this front of, ho front of house bit. Um, that part of the factory functioned on its own. Um, but what would happen with the drugs is the, the dogs or cats would get an injection, an induction dose that was injectable intramuscularly. So one shot, and then um, they would get sleepy. The owners would hold the dogs usually, and they would be in this kind of tarped off, kind of tented area right before for um, the anesthetic and the right before the intubation station. So the dogs would get sleepy from their intramuscular injection, and then they would get brought to where Jordan and the other two induction techs, Emily and Mare, were. And um, they would, if they needed more drugs, they could top them off at that point. But hopefully they were um, intubatable uh, by, that, by the time that they got there. So then they would be intubated, so we get their airway protected, and we would shave wherever the bits were, whether it was a neuter or a spay. Um, and then they would be transferred over to my area. So uh, my job, they called me the line anesthetist, or I would walk the line, which I loved, very Johnny Cash type reference. So walking the line, I was in charge of all seven anesthesia tables. Um, those dogs are under gas anesthesia at induction, and then they're under gas anesthesia during the surgery. Some of them would get IV catheters if we thought that they were a higher risk, so they could get IV fluids or IV injections of things, um, usually older dogs, pregnant, pregnant dogs, um, 
pregnant cats, things that we were dehydrated animals we could do to um, with IV catheter and fluids. Uh, no machines, though, just drop rates for everybody. And what they what would happen is they'd get dropped at these tables and then the surgeons are going to come. So I kind of took care of the surgeons and I took care of the animals on the anesthesia tables just before the surgery started and during surgery and then uh, would pass it off to recovery. So I literally walked in circles around these tables for 12 to 14 hours a day. More is more like more like 12. I'm going to say more like 14. Like I feel like it was more like 14. We, like, you know, if you think you're like. There at six, we left six or yeah, okay, 12, 14, depends. We were supposed to stop surgery at four, but if like, but if, uh, if EB, Elizabeth Berliner, we always called her EB, if she thought that we could get through the everybody for the day by the time we hit like six and we would just push through because we hated to leave people not getting their stuff, not, not getting their animals spayed or neutered if they already been checked through the process. So, uh, it's endless. Like, and it, I think the reason why a factory is a good description is because once that, once that first dog gets their injection, like the first injection of the IM injection, it's like the train leaves the station. Like the dogs just keep coming. They just keep coming. Animals, animals, animals. And like, I just walk in circles. One leaves the table, one comes onto the table. I hook them up to the anesthetic circuit. Surgeons come in. Like maybe I'll finish up a scrub. Maybe Diane from Rockin' Dog can come over, finish up a scrub, wear the vaccines, give the vaccines. Green dot, if they're f if they're fine for recovery in a, in a quick amount of time. Red dot, if we need to keep them for a little bit longer for whatever reason. Um, and those surgeons just like rotated around those seven tables and it did not stop the entire time that we were there it was amazing like I would have to take moments to appreciate what a fine-tuned machine this was and boy when something went wrong you knew it like you know if there was a dog that was real screamy or it didn't get its drugs correctly or it needed extra drugs and it kind of held up the line you knew it because all of a sudden the surgeons are waiting and like we had to find this fine balance of like you don't want to get too busy you don't want to have too many drugs like given like you don't want to have animals waiting intubated at induction and not move to the tables in a quick amount of time because they're going to get cold while they're sitting at induction like the whole thing operates on like these very quick surgeries and these surgeons man those incisions they are so highly skilled at this job you can barely see them by the time that they're done like the tats why they have to tattoo them they tattoo all the animals because their incisions are so small you can barely tell they had the surgery which is amazing um, sometimes there'd be things where, you know, a dog would have something that wasn't standard, you know, if they had a, like they were bleeding a whole lot or there's something that can happen called a dropped pedicle. I never really knew what that was, but it basically means that after you've like, you know, made incisions to like remove the uterus, if one of those slips out of your hands and is not tied off, not ligated and it's still bleeding, it can snake its way back into the abdomen where you now have to fish for this bleeding vessel, which really sucks. I mean, like if you're good at your job, um, it, you'll find it, but it just, it takes time. It like, it, it can be a little bit scary. Like, so it's, it's one of those things. It's like, it happens, but it's such a bitch when it happens. So the surgeons don't like it if they ever drop a pedicle. But anyway, so they, uh, they all did an, everybody did an incredible job. Like I'm amazed that we got through it. Jordan is so sweet. She checked in with me on that first day and second day all the time. Like, are you okay? How are you feeling? How are things going? Because like, it is such an intense and fast process that like your first time doing it, like I was real wide eyed the first day. Like I couldn't really tell if I was good at it on the first day because like I could, I was still learning the machine. And like, I feel like I do a good job when I'm functioning within a machine well like that's how I know I'm doing well is if the machine is running well and if everyone's happy and it was hard for me to tell if it was going well because it was just so fast and intense and chaotic on that first day um and I thought it was I was touched actually that Jordan checked in with me so often because she knew that she knew that that's how it would feel for me on the first day but it was all right you know we we got we got through it um there's, uh, there were seven days of it. Day four is this weird thing. There's something called the curse of day four. And the reason why uh, EB called it the curse of day four is because it's kind of the point in the process. You're halfway through. Everyone's feeling a little bit more comfortable. So people start to make mistakes. Um, and it's not just that you're more comfortable. It's also that you're tired from being up for, you know, this is your like, you know, day four of being up at four in the morning and going to bed at 930 just doing this, you know? And so people get tired, people get a little bit more 
lackadaisical about the details. So like day four was when the last trip that they had, they had a hemo abdomen. Like they had a dog that kept bleeding after the surgery, it had to go back into uh, the dog's abdomen and transfuse it with its own blood in order for it to survive. It did survive, but still that was like, that's a hiccup in the anesthesia factory right there. So the, she warned us when we were there, curse of day four, like everybody be on your toes. Day four went okay. I feel like there were two wonky things on day four, but we were able to fix them. One was I had a little tiny dog who was intubated in the esophagus. So this is a thing. And I think I've mentioned it on this show before. The mistake is not in intubating in the esophagus. The mistake is in not checking that you've intubated in the esophagus. Um, It's very easy to do, especially with very small animals in a weird lighting in a a freaking baseball stadium on a Caribbean island. Like it's hard. Um, A lot of the, oh, all the surgeons wore headlamps. Um, I had a pen light that I had in my mouth constantly looking at things. Um, All the induction techs, some of them had headlamps, you know, laryngoscopes. Like, I mean, it's hard to see. You have to check. And sometimes it happens. And so in this particular circumstance, there's a little tiny chihuahua and um, it started screaming when one of the surgeons cut into its abdomen. And it wasn't like even like right away when when she like put the scalpel to its skin. It was like kind of a delayed response because the dog was pro- was still, you know, anesthetized with the drugs that they'd given via injection. It's just that once she got deep enough into the tissue, like the dog started to wake up and you know that it's intubated in the esophagus because they can't scream. Their vocal folds don't hit each other to vibrate and make noise if there's a tube in the way. And if the tube is in the esophagus, then those vocal folds will hit together and make noise. And so that's how you know. So this dog making noise. I ran over right away and I was like, oh my God, this dog is intubated in the esophagus, pulled the endotracheal tube out. Um, someone immediately was running over with a laryngoscope, which I was very thankful for. Um, and I re-intubated this dog into the trachea and everything was fine. Um, but it was a scary moment because, you know, I have to do it while the dog is on its back. Its abdomen is open. Like the doctor was very calm and with her sterile gloves was just holding her hands over that incision. So, you know, a little touch, touch and go, touch and go for real. We had two of those that happened. The first one was on day four and we were okay, but it was, you know, okay, day four. Hmm. And then the other weird thing that happened is there was a, a a surgeon working on this this Maltese that was like six years old, they thought, so like a little bit on the older side of the dogs that we like to do. Um, I lo- This surgeon was a, a v- Maria from Miami. She was fantastic. Uh, she was working with this dog, and I had thought the dog had kind of looked a little just muddy with its color, but the lighting in that stadium was hard to tell. So I'd have to look with my pen light to be really sure that I thought the mucous membrane color was changing. So I checked that dog a couple times and I'm like, no, I think we're okay. But it's possible that it could have been going in and out and because we have no ventilators, right? So like if the dog's not breathing well, you have to hand ventilate them. There's seven tables going at the same time. And you know, I've got my, I've got my amazing table assistant, Martha, um, who can ventilate, you know, she can be, she could be the human ventilator, but you know, it, it's tricky. You can't do that all at the same time for all seven. So you kind of just have to watch real close, give them a couple breaths, move on to the next dog. That one's okay. How about this one over here? Oh, this one needs a breath. Give the breath, give, move on. So this dog, everybody seems stable. There was like four or five tables going. I was like, I have to eat something or I'm going to die. Cause that's how you'd have to do. You'd have to just like throw up a red, throw up a flare. I'm dying. Got to go eat. I'm dying. Got to drink water. And then someone would rotate you out. So I left Maria. I'm like, okay, girl, I'm going to go have something to eat. I'll be right back. I literally was off the floor for like two minutes. Uh, probably a little bit longer, maybe like five. She finished the surgery on this little Maltese thing. And all of a sudden I hear Jody, who's the lead surgeon underneath EB, say, Melina. And Melina was the name of the head anesthetist, like super loud. Everybody got super quiet. And I'm like, hmm bodies moving quickly. Let me see what this is. So I like finished up my bite of plantain or whatever that I was eating and walked out there and everyone is surrounding this Maltese. And I like walk over and everyone's a little flappy and they're putting an IV catheter into it, but the dog is sternal and it's looks like it's doing all, you know, I'm looking at it. Doesn't look like it's on the fur. It's breathing on its own, not on the verge of death. And I just very quietly, I'm like, what happened? What happened? And Maria says, Oh, I looked at his, at his gums and they were blue. I'm like, oh. So then I look with my pen light, not blue anymore. He's taking breaths. I'm like, okay, 
you look all right now. She's like, yeah, I just finished up and it looked really scary. I'm like, oh, I, I believe you. I believe that this dog scared you. And um, then he started kind of huffing and puffing and we extubated him. And he's walked around, or looked around, looked around like, mm-hmm. we're like, oh, all right. Well, I guess he's all right now. Hmm, off you go. And so then Maria's like, I'll take him. I'll take him to recovery. And I always thought it was very sweet that she often carried her own patients to recovery. So she took her, took the dog over to recovery and it tried to bite her in the boob. <laughs> So she's like, this one will live. It tried to it tried to bite me in the boob. It'll be fine. So who knows what happened? You know, I mean, I it's, it's hard to tell. I mean, I believe that she saw something scary. I think that the dog probably was not breathing very well on its own. And it probably did look bluish in, in, in that funky light in that baby, in that baseball stadium, you know? So anyway, she said she sounded the alert, which was the right thing to do. But she also said, she looked for me, right? Because I, I'm usually the one that they would call out for if something was unusual. Um, like, you know, like the, the surgeons would look for me if there was a problem. And of course, like she saw the dog's color looked weird. So she was like, Nicole, 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 Nicole. And of course I wasn't there. So she's it's like, like, like a little duckling looking for its mom. Like, mommy, mommy, mommy. <laughs> I wasn't anywhere to be found. So then she called Jody over and Jody immediately, she was the one who screamed for Melina for the, for the head anesthetist to come over. Cause she's kind of like, you know, she's, she helps with emergencies. So we were laughing about that later. There was like, mommy, mommy, mommy. And of course I'm like, you know, sitting scarfing, scarfing like tarot root puree or whatever the lunch was that day, trying to keep my blood sugar from plummeting. So I did start to feel more confident about the gig, like, you know, the longer that I was there, like I did feel like I, I liked it, you know, like this was, this was, this tapped into all of the things that I know how to do, like multitasking, monitoring anesthesia with very little equipment, right? We had pulse oximeters and I had my stethoscope and I had a pen light. <laughs> that was it for a thousand animals, right? And we had zero deaths zero deaths. We spayed and neutered a thousand and nineteen pets and none of them died that we know of. Um, we sent two to the hospital for aftercare because there were like complications. One was a cat that had something called a hydrometra, which means its uterus was filled with 180 mils of fluid. Whoa. Um, the other one was a little dog, ironically enough, another little white dog, little white Maltese thing that just looked a little pale and shocky after the whole day. I think it just, it was a lot of drugs for that little thing. Oh, it's a schnauzer mix. That's right. Which is funny because the hemo abdomen they had the time before was also a schnauzer mix. So like, oh, schnauzers. Um, but I knew I was good at doing a good job because Elizabeth Berliner, my newfound hero, she sent me on what we called it the first bus on the first car that left the hospital, like on day two, or I think it was day three. And when she told me that I could be on the first bus to go back to the Airbnb, I like wept. Like, she's like, you're doing a wonderful job. I want you to be on the first bus out of here to get some rest. I'm like, oh my God. I I was like crying with happiness because it means, you know, you get to kind of go back and shower first and like, you know, get change your clothes first. Just like all these like basic amenities that you become so thankful for. Like, you know, we never had hot water the entire time that we were there category five hurricane, um, that they still haven't recovered from, but it was fine because it's a tropical climate. Um, the shower head was so crappy that Kyle literally ripped the shower head off. So it was like, like a hose in the shower, but it was the best freaking hose cold shower I've ever had in my life. Uh, and I think that having her tell me that I did a good job, just like meant it, that meant a lot to me. That meant a lot to me that she was, that she appreciated that. It made me feel like I could do it. Like, you know, this is something I could do. Um, I'm good at it. Uh, it's like stage management meets ECC meets VTS meets anesthesia. It's all the things. It is all the things, all your, all your faculties as an emergency, uh, veterinary technician and as an anesthesia technician and as an organized person and the stamina that you need. It's just, it's all the things. I thought it was great. I loved it. I would do it a thousand times over. Um, I should talk about Elizabeth Berliner and why I'm so thankful to have her appreciation. Um, she, 
I can't believe this woman. She is there before we got there. Oh, I mentioned this. She was like, you know, giving trazodone to the crazy dogs in line, you know, like speaking in broken Spanish to these people. She was there after we left at the end of each day. She was there labeling pallets on the last day that we were there packing up. She organizes this whole thing. She's the one who fundraises for this. Like, so she's at like fundraising events, like, you know, working it to get money for us all to go there. Cause you know, we have no out of pocket expenses. Like our Airbnb is paid for airline is paid for paid for like all these things and she is at the root of all that she's the doctor who swings in and puts on a cap and mask when someone gets into trouble like if their dog is bleeding too much if they have a dog that's full term that you need extra hands um to like literally get puppies out of you know i mean like dr berliner is the one that comes in to save you and i think that she does some of the best medicine that I've ever experienced. You know, she's like, this is a place where no money exchanges hands, but the standards are not compromised. You know, we, we're doing the absolute best that we can with what we have. And I feel like it was, it was good. Like we did a good job there and she sets the standard for that. She sets the bar really high. Um, she has a sister named Kate, Kate Berliner, KB, <laughs> so EB and KB. Uh, her sister is also an amazing person. She is a construction designer with zero veterinary medicine experience, but Elizabeth had, um, EB had another volunteer drop out at the last minute who was supposed to play this vital role of organizing, like keep up the Excel spreadsheets for medications, for rabies certificate, Um organizing and all that and that person dropped out at the last minute like two weeks before we left so eb was at a loss she called her sister who lives in indiana and said i need you i need you to come and help me do this and kate said okay so she flew with us to san juan and played this role of kind of just like pharmacy organizer and patient info organizer like kind of just held held it together held the backstage together um and did an amazing job uh she once told me while we were there that her mother, the Berliner sister's mother, once described these two girls as oxen. And I thought that was such a good description, oxen. Like, they're just like, push ahead, push ahead, get through it. Um, when EB drove us back to San Juan at the end of the trip, me and Jordan and Kyle spent a night in San Juan, just as a little mini, like, 24-hour vacation there at the end of the whole excursion. Uh, we dropped her sister off at the airport on the way, and when she left, when she waved and we and like walked through the doors to to get into, you know, ticketing or whatever, E.B. cried and she said, I I'm like getting misty thinking about it. I could not I could not done it without her. I could not have done it. It would have been impossible. And I just I I love so much that that got pulled together in that way. You know, like that's that is true that's true love. Like that's true love for the purpose of the mission and for family and for everything. I just thought, uh, woo, yeah, flappy makes me flappy. Um, the other thing that made me flappy was watching recovery. So the dogs, after they had their surgery, they would go to the recovery area and recovery was bunch of mats and heating pads and wonderful volunteers and two doctors who would watch these dogs until they um, were awake enough to be extubated so they could pull their breathing tube out. And um, then they'd feed them a little snack. They'd put a little bit of dog food on a little quarter. Like they cut these paper plates into quarters and would just like put a little spoonful of dog food on there and would feed these puppies when they woke up and they'd be like super stoned, like like bobbly, but like wagging their tail and eating the eating the food. I'm num num num. I'm high, but I'm hungry and I'm happy. It was the most wonderful thing. Like every now and then even though I'm running in circles, like going crazy, like, you know, giving additional doses of ketamine or, or bedazzlam or like, you know, moving animals off a table, whatever it was in all of the factory, the anesthesia factory craziness, I would, I could look over at recovery and see this like Puerto Rican ground volunteer, um, chattering in Spanish at this like baby pit bull puppy who's waking up and feeding it little chunks of of little like wet dog food on a paper plate with its tail wagon and I would like immediately be crying like this is why we're here like look like look at this look at this like this is why we're here like this is an amazing moment that's happening for this animal and for that animal's family that we're able to provide this so when I needed a recharge I would just watch recovery for a couple seconds and be like, whew, okay back to the grind we got this 
I, I feel like there's a couple, a couple highlights that I should, that I should outline now that I've talked about kind of the way that the, that, that it worked for the last couple of days. There was one day where a dog in recovery in that little area where those little dogs are getting their little snacks. Um, one dog over there made this howl, like a true, like dog, like, like true dog howl. And when that dog did that, it was like, this chain reaction. All of a sudden there was another dog in recovery howling. Then there was a dog in what they call the quiet zone. That was, that was a little bit rowdy. That was in like the men's bathroom in a cage. That dog started howling. And then we just heard it ripple all the way down the stadium hallway. All these dogs, every dog in the place started howling. And we just like, all got real quiet and like looked up from what we were doing and looked around each other just wide-eyed and smiling just like whoa like this is amazing it really was like this amazing moment in that day of like wow these are like let's let's we not forget like these are animals right like this is like whoa um, Jordan tried to die of an allergic reaction to taro root. That was fun. So one of the days that we were there, we got this taro root mash and she ate it because I told her it was good. <laughs> I tried to kill her. I told her it was really good and it was, but then she said her lips felt weird and numb and she thought that her, she was like breathing funny. She thought like maybe her airway was tightening up. Oh my God. So they gave her some Benadryl, which then anesthetized her. So then she was like sleepy, poor thing. So she struggled through the rest of the day and then fell asleep in, in the Airbnb amongst, we called it the dish couch there's a there's actually a picture on my Facebook page for those of you who are curious about the dish couch big like papasan looking thing that we would put all the clean dishes on because there was nowhere else to really put dishes for that many people she literally like sat on that and then fell asleep amongst the dishes <laughs> she poured Jordan so no tarot root for you um there was a lady oh I mentioned the hydrometra that we saw in this kitty so the owner of that cat that had the really big hydrometra so the cat was like kind of unthrifty like you know it was a little skinny um that was one that was on IV fluids during its surgery and we sent it to an, a hospital a 24-hour hospital because it looked like it needed some aftercare after its big day cat did fine the little old lady who owned that cat brought us these giant restaurant tray sizes sized chicken and rice like grandma style like chicken and onions and and peppers and then the rice was also like had sofrito and like spices in it oh my god I feel like we ate that and felt like a million bucks you know like all of the the meals were primarily vegan because there was a lot of vegetarians and vegans that traveled with us and so just by default, we all had vegan food to make it easier. So nobody couldn't eat. Um, but man, the meat eaters, when we dug into that gra kitty grandma chicken, we felt like freaking superheroes that day. Ooh, that was good. Um, I do feel like it's worth mentioning the hurricane. <laughs> it came, came up once before. I forget. Oh, because we had no hot water, right? The whole time we were there. It's very upsetting to think that these wonderful people that I met, these beautiful people and volunteers and clients who brought their animals to us, some people drove two hours through mountains to get their animals to us for their spays um, and spent the whole day there. And uh, they're not they're not right. Like it's not right there yet. There are tarps on roofs. Like even our Airbnb that we were all staying in, the house next door had a FEMA tarp on it, you know, like... It's not fixed 100%. Um, we didn't experience any rolling blackouts, but Jordan did when she was there the last time. You know, they're building outlets for us in that stadium. The letters are missing on the, like, you know, this, this, uh, something Pedro Baseball Stadium was the name of it. And there's letters missing from the sign. There's pieces of the roof that are gone, you know, it, that are not yet r repaired. I asked, we had this sweet volunteer who uh, was a human nurse and she, her name was Frances and she helped us count medications and she always wore her scrubs, which I loved, uh, even though she's retired, like she'd always come in wearing her scrubs. And I asked her about it, you know, she asked, she's probably in her sixties. I was like, Frances, you know, like, can I ask you like, oh, because she mentioned it. She said like, oh, that was before the hurricane or I was before Maria. And I was like, can I ask you about that? Can I ask you about your experience during that? Like what happened? And she's like, ah, okay. So she, this is the story that she told me. They knew the hurricane was coming. They, in her neighborhood, which is in Calle, she was from that town. 
they all gathered at the place that was the biggest. They all gathered in the biggest house of everybody that they knew, all the families. And she said, because they're, it's because there's strength in numbers. So she said there were about 30 to 40 people that were all in this one house that was the biggest one, boarded up all the windows. Um, that is where they all stayed for the duration of the storm. She said um, this, they were without power for six months. They ran a generator between the hours of 5 p.m. and 10 p.m. so that they could make ice and make sandwiches. And they did that because they were providing for those who didn't have anything. And so they would walk around the neighborhood and they would give out the ice and give out the sandwiches and just provide for those who didn't have the same resources. Um, she said the scariest part of the entire storm was the sound that it made approaching. So everybody, well, I was surprised they had a generator. I was like, oh, you had a generator? She's like, oh yes. Everybody who lives in Puerto Rico has a generator. Like if you live in hurricane country, you have a generator, and I, which I didn't know. I was like, oh, okay. Um, but she said the sound that it made, now they'd heard hurricanes before, right? The sound that this storm made approaching the island was not natural. She said it sounded like a machine, like a whoosh, 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 like this really scary unnatural event approaching. Um, and what's so interesting is I saw my good friend, Batania, who I knew from Teatros and Zani. Oh my God, talk about worlds collide. Um, she was also in San Juan for the hurricane and she said the same thing, same thing. She said the scariest part of the whole storm was the sound that it made. It didn't sound normal. So I think that's scary, you guys. Like that's, that storm was not normal. It was scary. That's like global warming giving us super mutant storm. So lest that be a lesson of fear to you all. The thing that Batania also said about her hurricane experience was that when they left San Juan, so, so she left. Like Batania has a, had a, has a seven-year-old boy who is adorable, but he was, whoa, I want to say three or four at the time of that storm. She couldn't stay. Like she said that it was impossible. Like she had, she went to New York because you could not stay on that island in the state that it was in. No power. She said it looked like a bomb had gone off. Like there was just no roofs anywhere, just flattened, no leaves on any of the trees. It looked like it looked like a war zone. She said people were burying their dead in their backyards. People were walking the streets, crying and screaming. And she said she still to this day has. PTSD from that experience. She says she has PTSD from the sound the storm made. Ugh! So anyway, not to get to, I'm not going to bring it all down. I'm going to bring all this all down on the old cat disgusted. Cause you know, we don't want to get be too, we don't want to be too low for too long, but I think it is worth telling those stories so that we know that that happened to us citizens, everybody. They are us citizens and they are still not provided for to this day. Anyway, so it changed my life, guys. It changed my life, that experience. I would do it again in a heartbeat. Um, everybody who went on that trip is like, is like summer camp, like, but like boot camp summer camp. Like we all became so close so fast because we worked so hard and we did so much good there. And it was one of the hardest jobs I've ever done and one of the most rewarding jobs I've ever done with some of the most amazing people that I've ever met. And I think that those things, like we, we're all going to carry that with us for the rest of our lives, you know, and people who do this repeatedly and do this for like their entire life's purpose, which some of the vets do. Um, that's amazing. Like walk the earth vet people, like walk the earth spanooters. I love it keep it going. If you can do volunteer work with this type of organization, do it. You don't have to be a veterinary professional like Kate Berliner proved to me. You can just organize things for people. You can cook food for people like Kyle, you know, like, like what Kyle did. Um, like, you know, our, we had a house matron, which was Jim Boudreau, who is, uh, he's actually the executive director of, um, of an SPCA in Ithaca, New York, and he was like in charge of the autoclaves and like he was, he called himself the Mrs. Garrett of the house because he would do the food with Kyle. And like, you know, he's not a vet, but he was absolutely indispensable in the process. So I feel like it's worth doing, do more good. I'm going to do more good. 
Um, I think all, the, all those people that went on that trip were, that were first timers like me, which there weren't many of, lots of people had done it before. We're all going to go out in the world and do more good. And uh, I went to New York City immediately after this. <laughs> Because that's what you do. Um, I went and visited uh, my buddy Sarah Leppin, the criticalist I used to work with. Um, went and hung out in, in Manhattan for a couple days at the end of this spayathon, which at the moment I thought sounded like a freaking crackhead thing to do at the end of this. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to lose my mind in Manhattan. Turned out to be the best idea ever because I just lit- I just love wandering around New York so, so, so very much. I could do that for freaking months and be happy. And so that's what I did. I like wandered around New York. Um, we had sushi and like watched Game of Thrones and it was, and I, you know, napped with the dog and pet the cat and it was awesome. She lived close to Central Park. So I went and walked around Central Park and the Natural History Museum. And I went to the Bethesda Fountain because I have been, I've stood in front of the Bethesda Fountain in like several different moments in my life. And Angels in America is a show that I stage managed when I was in college that was a similar experience to this. Like everybody who was on that show remains friends to this day because it was so intense and we all learned so much. And it was a beautiful piece of art that we put together that to this day is one of the best things I've ever done in my theatrical career. I went to the Bethesda Fountain for the first time because of the play Angels in America that I had worked on. Um, I went to stand in front of Bethesda Fountain after that, the second time I went to New York, um, I, oh, when I had gone through a really bad breakup, that's the second time that I did. Uh, this time I stood in front of the Bethesda fountain again, a different person, you know, I stood in front of that fountain and cried, which is fine. Like that's, it was a, it was a, a wealth of emotion that I felt like just kind of move through me in that moment because here I am again. Here she is. Like I look at her like, hello, Bethesda Fountain. Here I am again, a different person. Like who will I be the next time? <laughs> you know, like I don't, who knows? But I'm glad that there's going to be a next time. And I'm glad that I get to look forward to what that next time will be. And it reminded me of the very end of Angels in America, um, Prior Walter, who's like the main character. I know you guys, bear with me, bear with me going into theater world. Um, but he has this incredible line at the that the last bits, the last monologue of Angels in America. And I would like to close this podcast with those final lines. You are fabulous creatures, each and every one. And I bless you more life. The great work begins. <laughs>